I'm going to read through uh, the first part of the chapter to about verse 10. It says in chapter 18, Now the whole congregation of the children of Israel assembled together at Shiloh and set up the tabernacle of meeting there. And the land was subdued before them. But there remained among the children of Israel seven tribes which had not yet received their inheritance. Then Joshua said to the children of Israel, How long will you neglect to go and possess the land which the Lord God of your fathers has given you? Pick out from among you three men for each tribe, and I will send them. They shall rise and go through the land, survey it according to their inheritance, and come back to me. And they shall divide it into seven parts. Judah shall remain in their territory on the south, and the house of Joseph shall remain in their territory on the north. You shall therefore survey the land in seven parts, and bring the survey here to me, that I may cast lots for you before the Lord our God. But the Levites have no part among you, for the priesthood of the Lord is their inheritance. And Gad, Reuben, and the half-tribe of Manasseh have received their inheritance beyond the Jordan on the east, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave them. Then the men arose to go away, and Joshua charged those who went to survey the land, saying, Go, walk through the land, survey it, and come back to me, that I may cast lots for you here before the Lord in Shiloh. So the men went passed through the land and wrote the survey in a book in seven parts by cities. And they came to Joshua at the camp in Shiloh. Then Joshua cast lots for them in Shiloh before the Lord. And there Joshua divided the land to the children of Israel according to their divisions. The chapter begins with a picture of the importance of worship. And trusting God for spiritual peace in verse 1. We then read about this stern rebuke by Joshua to avoid the dangers of complacency, self-sufficiency, of adopting an attitude of self-satisfaction that I have everything that I need and I don't need anything else in verses 2 through 10. The chapter is going to end with a description of the inheritance of Benjamin in verses 11 through 18, which again is going to provide us a picture of God's gift of protections and security in verses 11 through 28. Later, if you turn the page to chapter 19, it's going to give a description of the inheritances of Simeon. And with the inheritances of each of the tribes, there's a little built-in lesson for each and every one of us. With Simeon, it's a lesson in humility. With Zebulon, it's a picture of God's grace. With Issachar, it's a picture of God's faithfulness. Azure becomes a picture of great inheritance through sea and land. His inheritance reminds us of commerce and trade and interaction. The inheritance of Naphtali is a picture of a great conquest. And Dan is going to give us a tragic picture 
of weakness, of fear, of doubt, of weak faith. And then we'll see an inherit, the inheritance of Joshua, which is a picture of diligence and strength and, and sound leadership. In, verse, in chapter 19, verses 49 through 50, Chapter 19 is going to conclude with the inheritance of the Lord being given in the presence of the Lord, which is a picture of our need for guidance and instruction by the presence of the Lord. And so again, it begins with the priority of worship. You're going to see in just a moment why this is such an important point. In Joshua chapter 18, verse 1, it says, Now the whole congregation of the children of Israel assembled together at Shiloh, and they set up the tabernacle of meeting. The tabernacle of meeting, of course, remember, this is the place where you meet God. This is the place where the pillar of fire used to lead, and the cloud used to provide guidance. And it says, and the land was subdued before them. Shiloh was situated in the allotment of Ephraim. It was built on a hill about nine miles north of Bethel. It had a commanding, somewhat central location. And the tabernacle of of meeting was temporarily located there. And we're going to discover that again later when we, at some point, study the book of Judges. And at the time of the meeting place had doorposts and doors, which were called the tabernacle. And although the destruction of Shiloh isn't described in the records of this period, like it is in 1 Samuel chapter 4, it must have been overwhelming because of the wickedness of the children of Israel. But the children of Israel move from Gilgal, to Shiloh. Now, when you're reading this, you actually really need a map to kind of show you from Gilgal to Shiloh, that's where the Jordan Valley turns into the hill country. And Shiloh was strategically located in the center of the land. It would be in the center of the land that the tabernacle of meeting would be assembled to provide a place of worship for all of the tribes that come from the north, that come from the south, that come from the east, and they come from the west. Earlier, the tribes of Joseph expressed their dissatisfaction about their portion. You'll remember the tribe of Joseph included Manasseh, And Ephraim, they had part of their tribal allotment on the east side of the Jordan, and they had part of the tribal allotment on the west side of the Jordan. And you'll remember what Joshua said. He said, stand up to your enemies. And they said to Joshua, they have chariots of iron. We can't go against them. And he said, yes, you can if you unite in your effort. If you band together and then trust the Lord, you see there are certain battles and there are certain things that are going to require a corporate participation. We sometimes think of worship as something we do individually. 
but almost 90% of all that's ever talked about in the Bible about worship is a corporate worship. It's when the family of God come together, where we pray together, where we praise together. Worship becomes the lifeblood that keeps the congregation alive. And I'll be honest with you. Worship precedes discipleship. Discipleship will always be empty and mechanical unless there's a sense of enthusiasm and excitement provided by worship. Worship makes discipleship possible and discipleship makes evangelism possible because worship makes discipleship possible and discipleship makes evangelism possible then we unite corporately together. And you'll remember in the books of Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers, the Lord ordains feast days and festivals. This was the time when the nation unites in corporate worship and celebration. How fitting is it that on July 5th, after our nation unites, Democrats and Republicans, um, conservatives and liberals, independents and self-sufficient people throughout our country, they unite together and they celebrate this thing called the United States of America. And on the 5th of July, we can unite and come together as men and women of God. You see, the Lord ordains the feast days and the festival days so that the Lord would be first, that the Lord would be worshipped and the Lord would be served. Worship becomes one of the keys, not only to spiritual rest, but to spiritual peace in the life of the believer. Are you agitated and upset? Are you experiencing a kind of a disconnect? Do you want peace and purpose in your life? And you've never thought that maybe worship might be the answer that's going to lead to discipleship. In 1 John, which we just recently studied, we learned that the believer who walks in the light, has fellowship with God, and we have fellowship with one another. One of the members in our body was saying, hey, I was listening to you on the radio today. And on the radio today, I'm walking through the audience this issue of fellowship. The people who walk in the light have fellowship with God, but even more than that, they have fellowship with one with another. You can't have fellowship one with another unless you have fellowship with the Lord. And so maybe it's time that we begin to say we have to make worship a priority. The people of Israel would have to trust God to provide a permanent place for peace and rest. And Abraham and his children had spent much of their lives in nomadic wandering. And then they experienced the oppression of slavery. And maybe some of you have experienced wandering in your walk with the Lord. Maybe even some of you have experienced moments of oppression and slavery, addictions to drugs or, or alcohol or whatever your drug of choice is. But the peace and the rest depended on putting the Lord first. 
And so they're moving from Gilgal to Shiloh. You may not see a whole lot in this first verse, but if you don't understand the first verse, you won't understand the rest of the chapter. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 10, when Jesus was tempted by Satan in the wilderness, he said, away with you, Satan, for it is written, you will worship the Lord your God, and him only will you serve. Worship is almost lost in our culture. If you were actually to go out into this great big world in which you live, if you spent any time with your friends or family at work or at school, wherever you happen to be, and you just ask them, tell me what worship means to you, many of you are going to be met with a great big, I don't even think I understand what you're asking me. Long ago in the Alliance Witness, which was written by A.W. Tozier, he said, quote, It is said that our great-grandfathers called it the Holy Sabbath. Our grandfathers the Sabbath. Our fathers Sunday. And we call it the weekend. We've substituted the holiday for the holy day. Recreation for reverence. Games for godliness dissipation for devotion. In short, we use the gift of the Lord's day to destroy its giver. We don't set aside a time. Ron Allen in his book, Worship, Rediscovering the Missing Jewel, asks the question, what then is the essence of worship? He writes, it's the celebration of God. We worship God when we celebrate him. We sound his praises. We boast in him. Worship is not the casual chatter that occasionally drowns out the organ prelude. We might say the guitar solo. We celebrate God when we allow the prelude to attune our hearts to the glory of God by means of music. Worship is not the mumbling of prayers or the mouthing of hymns with little thought and less heart. We celebrate God when we join together earnestly in prayer and intensity in song, unquote. I love that. When we worship God, he becomes large. But let me tell you what else happens. The moment that God becomes large in your life, your problems become small. And the larger you make him, the smaller your problem becomes. Shiloh is one of the titles or the names that was given to the Messiah and the Savior. Jacob said Shiloh would come through his seed or offspring. In Genesis 49, 10, it says, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh come. Unto him shall be the gathering of the people be. In Genesis 18, verse 1, the people begin to gather at Shiloh. It becomes the first place where the congregation worships together in the context of experiencing their possession. Now remember what we've already learned. As we watch the children of Israel 
possess what belongs to them, this might seem like the dry reading of meaningless cities and a geography that you're completely unfamiliar with until you remember that spiritually it's a picture of what you get to possess in Christ, all that belongs to you in Jesus. Now, the meaning of the word Shiloh is disputed. It might be related to the word shalom, which of course means peace, or shalah, which means rest, or it may have had its origin to mean he to whom, the idea being he to whom it belongs. The reference might have multiple meanings. Both Judah and Jesus were to bring rest and peace, but worldly peace has its limits. It may be a hint of a future peace, a lasting peace in the Lord Jesus. But remember, peace is more than just the absence of conflict. And this is why we see in it a picture of Jesus, because Jesus doesn't bring a temporary peace. He brings a lasting peace. He brings a permanent peace. Jesus picks up the scepter, or Judah, and the people gather to him. If a person prefers the meaning, he to whom, then Shiloh is the Messiah. He to whom the scepter is given, the right to rule, the obedience of the nations belongs to him. In Hebrew, the meaning is supported by Ezekiel. He uses the exact same words in Ezekiel chapter 21, verses 26 and 27, where it says, Thus says the Lord God, remove the turban, take off the crown, nothing shall remain the same. Exalt the lowly, abase the exalted, overthrown, overthrown, I will make it overthrown. It shall be no longer until he comes whose right it is, and I shall give it to him, unquote. The prophecy seems to indicate that there would come a time in Israel where they would have no king, and the Messiah would come back. Jerusalem is going to be destroyed by Babylon. They're going to return, and they're going to have no king. They'll have a temporary ruler. And then during the time when Jesus comes, he becomes the last king. So the tabernacle at Shiloh has the Ark of the Covenant, which becomes a type and a picture of Jesus. Remember, the Ark is made of acacia wood, which speaks of his humanity. It's made of gold, which speaks of his divinity. It is the place where you go and you get instructions. And by the way, the Ark of the Covenant from chapter 18, verse 1, will not move until 2 Samuel chapter 6, verses 1 through 19, when David will move it to Jerusalem. I know you're panicked. He's only on verse 1. Now we go to verse 2. But there remained among the children of Israel seven tribes which had not yet received their inheritance. Then Joshua said to the children of Israel, How long will you neglect to go and possess the land which the Lord God of your fathers has given you? Joshua begins with, A strong rebuke. The rebuke, of course, is this isn't the time to quit. 
This isn't the time to throw in the towel. This isn't the time to turn your back on God. This sometimes happens to Christians. They accept Christ as their Savior and their whole world seems to fall apart. A husband leaves them or a wife leaves them. All hell breaks loose. And you wonder, I, my life was a lot less dramatic before I became a Christian. And so you stall or you stammer. There are setbacks. Much of Canaan was now occupied, but seven tribes were still without a permanent home. Why does Joshua issue this strong rebuke and this strong command? The implication is that these tribes were content to continue to live a life of nomadic wandering and what Donald Campbell calls a purposeless existence. I see in this a type and a picture of people who become Christians and they go, I've accepted Christ as my savior. I don't need, you know what? I don't need to read my Bible. I don't need to know my Bible. I don't need to love my Bible. But guess what? This is what we're going to be talking about over the next several weeks. You can't grow. Unless you begin to take Jesus seriously. And you begin to take seriously all that he wants for you. And all that he has for you. Now remember about this idea of a life of nomadic wandering. In other words, remember for almost 400 years, these people have been slaves. For 40 years, they've been wandering in the wilderness. I don't know if you've ever been homeless or if you've ever lived somewhere uh, or, or you, when you were in college, you lived in a dorm and you lived under these circumstances and those circumstances and pretty soon you became, you became used to it. You lost the sense of what it was to have a relationship and to have a home and to have a permanent place. So many people in this community have no church. They go from church to church to church to church. They're not connected. They're not plugged in. It's evident by all of those empty seats that I see all around me. I actually wonder, how in the world is it possible that not every single seat in this auditorium isn't full? What, what are we doing wrong? Is it the worship? No, Carolyn is wonderful, incredible. Am I really that bad of a Bible teacher? What's going on? I can't blame her. And I won't blame you. You see, God is in charge of salvation and God is in charge of sanctification. But Joshua was willing to tell the seven tribes... Why are you content to live your life like you've always lived it? God has so much more for you. I want to point something out that's different from what happened with Manasseh and Ephraim, with what happened with Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh, with Judah. They came to Joshua and they said, Give us our inheritance. These seven tribes did not go to Joshua. They weren't even asking. Think about all the people who go to Jesus and say, 
Jesus, I want so much more. I'm so thankful for salvation. I'm so thankful for sanctification. I'm so thankful for cleansing. I'm so thankful for the promise of eternity in heaven. But there has to be something else. There must be something more. Do you want to use me in some way? Do you want to use my life? I want, to, I want you to reveal what the gifts and callings are. I want to know what's left for me to possess. But they haven't even come to Joshua. Just like so many people haven't even come to Jesus. They don't get up in the morning and they don't say, Jesus, what do you have for me and what do you want for me? They don't live their life throughout the day going, Jesus, what would you have? Is there something else? Is there something more? They were content with less. What happens when a nation becomes indifferent and apathetic and half-hearted? Theirs was a sense of complacency and lethargy and self-satisfaction. The same thing sometimes happens with individuals. And it sometimes happens with churches. Well, I guess we're just going to have to settle for with what we have. Until someone says, I want more. I want more. I want more for us. How can we tell if we've slipped into that indifference, that complacency, the, the lethargy? This is what's being talked about between verses 2 through 10. It's people who are content with less than what Jesus wants, content with less than what God wants, less than what Jesus demands. And again, we have to remember what being half-hearted means. Half-heartedness consists of serving God in such a way as not to offend the devil. Oh, I'll serve God. But I don't want to make anybody upset. I don't want to upset my husband. I don't want to upset my wife. I don't want to upset my neighbors. I don't want to upset people. Only five tribes have received their inheritance, which leaves seven without their inheritance. Now look what it says in verse 4. Pick out from among you three men from each tribe. All 12? No. He's talking about the seven tribes that have not inherited it. And this is what's interesting to me. Even though there are certain people who go to Jesus and say, give me more. And even though there are people who won't go to Jesus and won't say, give me more. Joshua is, comes to them and says, I want to give you so much more. Even though you are not even asking it. When, he, when he's talking about these, these tribes, the seven tribes, he says, pick out three men from each tribe. This means 21 guys. And he says, and I will send them. They shall rise and go through the land, survey it according to their inheritance, and come back to me. Joshua's in effect saying, no more excuses. No more delays. Time is running out. The time has come to dispatch the scouts, to map out the land, to see what's left so that everyone can have exactly what they're supposed to have. And this would have been a time-consuming process. 
They needed to travel throughout the land. They had to survey the cities. They had to point out the landmarks. They had to understand and write out a detailed account for each area. Imagine if you were mapping out this area and you said, okay, we're going to walk from here to Castle Rock. Or imagine if you were going to walk all the way to the devil's pinnacle or whatever that thing is called in Wyoming. What if you were going to go all the way north to Yellowstone or south to the Rio Grande River? It's going to take some time. And so Joshua says in verse 5, and they shall divide it into seven parts. Look, listen carefully. Judah shall remain in their territory on the south. The house of Joseph shall remain in their territory in the north. Now again, in verse 6 it says, You shall therefore survey the land in seven parts and bring the survey here to me that I may cast lots for you before the Lord our God. In short, the scouts are going to map out the land. They're going to give a detailed written report. Now I want you to think about this for just a moment. Moses gave them a detailed, written word so they would know exactly what to do. Now Joshua, in the very book that you're studying right at this moment, is going to remind them that we're going to take this information and we're going to give a detailed report of everything that belongs to you. They're to return to Joshua for further instructions, and then the remaining land was to be divided apart for each tribe in verse 5. The scouts or the surveyors were to respect the territories that were already allotted to Judah and Joseph in verse 5. Once Joshua received an accurate and comprehensive account of the land, then they were to seek the Lord. Seek the Lord for guidance, instruction, inheritance. Joshua would cast lots. Now that expression, cast lots, is going to appear 25 times in the book of Joshua. They're going to use what's called the urim and tumim. These were objects that God supernaturally allowed the high priest to say yes or no 25 times beginning in chapter 13 verse 6. This was the divinely appointed means of determining the will of God. But you don't cast lots. Christian, you don't have to go, okay, everyone pull a quarter out of their pocket, flip it, heads we go left, tails we go right. That's not the way we determine God's will. You're a Christian. You have the Holy Spirit living inside of you. You have the word of God in front of you. You have the throne of grace above you. You have open doors and you have closed doors. And you have circumstances that God places right in front of you. I don't know what God wants. You're not looking hard. I don't know what God wants. What's the Holy Spirit telling you? I don't know. Ask him. 
What's the word of God telling you? Well, I just want to know if it's God's will for me to rob the liquor store. No, you've read in the book in the Bible, it says, thou shalt not steal. You don't have to, you don't have to pray about that. If it's wicked and evil and wrong, you can't do it. I just want to, well, God put this man in my life or this woman in my life. They're not a Christian, but, but God put them in my life. How do you know Satan didn't put them in your life? Especially if they're inviting you to do that which is wicked. But look what Joshua's doing. In verse 7 it says, but the Levites have no part among you. We've already learned that. The Levites are going to be a tribe that are going to be dispersed from Dan and Kadesh, from in Shechem, in Hebron, in Betzer, in Ramot Gilead. These priests are going to serve as servants to all of the tribal groups throughout the land. Their inheritance is the Lord. And Gad and Reuben and the half-tribe of Manasseh have received their inheritance beyond the Jordan on the east, which Moses, the, of the, the servant of the Lord, gave them. They're on the east side. You're in the promised land. Once again, Joshua reminds the tribes of Levi's inheritance. The two and a half tribes have already received their, their reward. Then in verse 8 it says, Then the men arose to go away. Look what's happening. They did it. What's better than that? Especially when Jesus says, I want you to do something. And you go, okay. You see, it's one thing for me to say something, but it's another thing for Jesus to say something. To Jesus, for Jesus to speak to you. Because you see, if I can work you into an emotional frenzy, you're going to burn out. But if God by his Holy Spirit, speaks to you and confirms to you what, what needs to be done, then you can act. It says, then the men rose and they went away and Joshua charged those who went to survey the land, saying, go, walk through the land, survey it, and come back to me that I may cast lots for you here before the Lord in Shiloh. Every verb in that verse is important. Go, walk, survey, come back, and get further instructions. So again, he repeats the charge to survey the land. And it would seem that this admonition was given once again. Why does he repeat it? Because they're still struggling with apathy, indifference. With sluggishness. Moms and dads, have you ever had to say to your child, I need you to do this. And then you had to repeat it. I need you to do this. Why do you normally have to repeat stuff? It's because they're not forthcoming in obedience and submission. But praise God. The men obeyed. Look what it says in verse 9. So the men went, passed through the land, wrote the survey in a book in seven parts by cities, and they came to Joshua at the camp in Shiloh. They did exactly what they were told. And now there's an opportunity for the 
division of the land. Verse 10, then Joshua cast lots for them in Shiloh before the Lord. And there Joshua divided the land to the children of Israel according to their divisions. And you, you can't see it in the text yet, but in Azure is going to be up in the north. And Dan and Naphtali around the, uh, the, the west side of the, of the Galilee. And Zebulon and Issachar and Manasseh and Ephraim and Dan and Benjamin. And we're going to talk about that in just a moment. But Joshua cast lots, and this is the key concept, before the Lord. That is, they sought God's will concerning the distribution of the land and the territories. It becomes a type and a picture for you. What am I supposed to do? Seek God's will. How will he talk to me? He's going to talk to you by his Holy Spirit. Well, how do I know it's the Holy Spirit? Because there's a reason why his name is the Holy Spirit. He's not going to ask you to do things that are dumb and dirty. It's going to be consistent with the character of Christ. It's going to be revealed in the word of God. Well, how do, what if, what if I, I still don't get it? Do you remember the first word you learned as a child? It's probably no, because you heard it so much growing up. No, no, no. By the way, if God has ever said no to you and you've ever heard God's, you've prayed, Lord, can I do this? And the Lord said, no. <laughs> then, and you know when no is no. And sometimes the Lord says yes. But what if you hear nothing? Lord, can I do this? I don't hear no. And I don't hear yes. Well, some things are issues of obedience and some things are issues of faith. By faith, make a decision and trust the Lord. Because if God wants to say no, he can say no. This is a time when you could seek godly counsel, a man or a woman who's mature in Christ. And you can go, hey, you know, these things are happening. You know, this is exactly what I do. Lord, what do you want me to do? Examine what the Bible has to say. Seek godly counsel. Does my conscience agree or disagree with the decision? Is there an open door or a closed door? Well, what if all of them aren't giving me the right instructions? Like I said, then you're going to have to make a choice by faith because guess what? Without faith, it's impossible to please him. There will always be two decisions that you will always have to make for the rest of your life. Decisions in obedience to Jesus and decisions by faith. The ones by obedience, you'll know. It's an, act, it's an issue of obedience. The ones by faith, you won't necessarily know. You're going to have to trust them and make a choice and then walk into the future. But the whole point is you ask. You seek God's will and God's guidance. And so we should be careful. Because it's easy to become complacent and half-hearted and self-sufficient. Instead of dependent on the Lord. We have an amazing inheritance in Christ. We can only possess what we experience. And we have to lay claim to our inheritance. We have so much more than simple salvation. Forgiveness of sin, pardon, 
we can have victory in Jesus. So we're, we're called to a life of abundance and victory over our enemies. The world, the flesh, and the devil conspire against us to keep us from God's love, to keep us from biblical peace and joy, to keep us from fellowship and purpose and significance and fulfillment and satisfaction and confidence and assurance. And I could go on and on and on. The Bible promises the Christian confidence, conquest over trials and temptations so that you can experience fellowship and friendship with other believers. You're saved from the, by the cross. You're delivered from death. You're delivered from judgment. You get to know God personally. Christ intimately. You have the assurance of heaven. You're never going to really die. Remember what Jesus said? I'm the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, even if you were dead, yet shall you live. And whoever lives and believes me will never die. The prophet Amos lamented, Woe to them that are at ease in Zion. In Amos 6.1, it was his way of saying, How unfortunate it is if you're absolutely content where you are. In Luke 9.62, Jesus said to him, No man having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 24.12, And because of iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold, but he that endures to the end will be saved. You have to keep your heart in constant check. Are you growing cold, apathetic and indifferent? And now we see the blessing of security and watch us as we race through. Now the lot of the tribe of the children of Benjamin came according to their families and the territory of their lot came out between the children of Judah and the children of Joseph. Now you may not have a map in front of you, but, if you, but just to the south of, of Benjamin was Judah and to the north was Ephraim. On, on the west side was Dan and the other side was again the, the Salt Sea. The land given to Joshua in the north, he was protected by Ephraim. In the south, he's protected by Judah. You'll have to remember that. Remember, in the Bible, Benjamin is the youngest son born to, to Rachel who dies in childbirth in Bethlehem. The tribe was called the little tribe because Benjamin, their leader, there is little Benjamin, their leader, the princes of Judah and their company, the princes of Zebulon and the princes of Naphtali. He was always called little. But even in the inheritance, guess what Benjamin has? Protection from his brothers, his older brothers. Benjamin is surrounded and protected. And for some Christians... They have to be surrounded and protected because they're weak and they're small. You might think, why did God call you to the ministry? It's because he couldn't trust me in the real world. I can't be trusted out there. God says, I'm going to give you a job where you have to pray every single morning where you have to depend on me every single day, where you have to trust me every single night, 
Benjamin is surrounded and protected. And again, it becomes a picture of God's security and God's protection. And God may have, God is going to either place you in one of two positions, protected or protector. But you are going to fall into one of those categories. And look at verse 12. The border on the north side began at the Jordan. And the border went to the side of Jericho on the north. You should probably put the, the, uh, the map up. And, and went through the mountains westward and ended in the wilderness of Bet-Avin. The border went over from there toward Luz to the side of Luz, which is Bethel. Bethel is going to figure prominently in the future. Bethel is the place where Jacob is going to see a ladder stretching from heaven to the earth. Bethel is going to be the place where Jacob meets God. Bethel is going to be the place where Jacob will return when he's lost the sense of the presence of God. Where is Bethel for you? Bethel is the place where you met Jesus. It's when things go crazy and difficult and disconnected and you go back to that place and that simple place of trust and submission. It says in verse 13, it went to the side of Luz southward and the border uh, descended to Atarot Adar near the hill that lies on the south side of the lower Beth Oron. Then the border, in verse 14, extended around the west side to the south from the hill that lies before Beth Oron southward, and it ended at Kiriath Baal, which is Kiriath Jerim, which is a city of the children of Judah that is on the west side. The south side began at the, the end of uh, Kiriath-Jerim. And the border extended on the west and went out to the spring of the, of the waters of Naphtua. Then the border came down to the end of the mountain that lies in the valley of the son of Enom, which is the valley of Rephaim on the north, descended on the valley of Enom, to the side of the Jebusite city on the south, and descended to Enrogel. You may not know what all of that stuff means, but the cities that are featured in the province, which is provided for Benjamin, Benjamin is going to include Jerusalem, which is going to be the most important city on the planet Earth. His possession, though small, is going to include a city that the prophets will prophesy about. It will be conquered 35 times. It will be devastated and decimated. But Jesus will go there. And Jesus will die there. And Jesus will rise from the dead. Even though you don't always understand the importance of the inheritance that's entrusted to you. Its future might unfold in an amazing way. And in verse 17 it says, And it went from the north, it went to Enshemesh. It extended toward Giliot, which is before the ascent of Adamim, and descended to the stone of Boan, of the son of Reuben. Then it passed toward the north side of Arabah, and went down to the Arabah. You know why we know this? Because those seven guys, those 21 guys, three from the tribe of Benjamin, they began to, all together, they would 
map out and survey this land, you are reading the product of the survey. And even though you may not understand the geography, it's all outlined because in the future, these geographical boundaries are going to settle the disputes between the tribes. And so again, he says in verse 19, and the border passed on the north side of Beth Hoglah. The border ended at the north bay of the Salt Sea, at the south end of the Jordan. This was the southern boundary. The Jordan was its border on the east side. This was the inheritance of the children of Benjamin, according to the boundaries all around, according to their families. Verse 21, now the cities of the tribe of the children of Benjamin, according to the families, were Jericho. Remember, it was destroyed. Beth Hoglah. Emek Kaziz, Beth Araba, Zimarim, Beth El, Avim, Para. This is not Oprah Winfrey, this is Ophrah. Because whoever Oprah's mom was read this verse and just misspelled her name. You laugh, but it's actually true. Oprah's a misspelling of Ophrah. Verse 24, Kefar, Haamoni, Ophni, Gaba, 12 cities and their villages. Pause for a moment. Gibeon, Kephara, Moza. You know what all of these cities have in common? They were built, planted, established by people who were going to be forced to leave. And they're going to take advantage of and be the recipients of, beneficiaries of, a place and buildings and vineyards and fruit trees that they never planted. Again, you're going to fall into one of two categories. A person who plants or a person who harvests. Your whole life will consist of either planting seed or harvesting seed. That's what these cities mean. Gibeon, Ramah, Bekroth, Mitzpah, Kephirah, Motzah, Rekim, Irpel, Taralat, Zelah, Eleph, Jebus, which is Jerusalem, Gibeath, Kirath, 14 cities with their villages. This was the inheritance of the children of Benjamin, according to the, the families. Quickly, the area assigned to Benjamin, small. It's about 25 miles from east to west, 15 miles from north to south. But the inheritance of, of Jericho is going to include some of the most important cities that are going to be referenced in the Bible. Jericho, Bethel, Gibeon, Ramah, Mitzpah, Jerusalem. For the serious Bible student, these are going to be names that you're going to have to know. The temple was going to be built in Jerusalem. Moses prophesied of Benjamin, he said, the beloved of the Lord, that's what he called Benjamin, the beloved of the Lord shall dwell in safety by him. Why? He's surrounded by his brothers to the north, the south, and the east and the west. He's protected. Who shelters him all day long and shall dwell between his shoulders? He pictures Benjamin as a head. Protected by a body. Who shall dwell between the two shoulders? In one sense, Benjamin. In another sense, where it says, the Lord shall dwell. 
Some Hebrew prophets and scholars believed it meant this is the place where the Lord will live. If you get a chance to go with me to Israel next March, from March 10th to March 21st, you're going to go to that city and you're going to begin to discover why this city is the most important city in the world. You're also going to go into the middle of that city where there's a 15-acre plot that's called the Temple Mount. This is the city that was going to be called the apple of God's eyes. In 2 Chronicles 6, 19, it says, For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong on behalf of them whose heart is perfect toward him. Herein you have done foolishly. Therefore, from henceforth thou shalt have wars. In other words, the promise and the inheritance is going to be conditioned on obedience and submission. Are the people of Benjamin going to honor and obey the God? Not always. Benjamin is going to be the very first king of Israel, and he's going to be removed. Jerusalem is going to be the very first capital, but it's going to be destroyed. And so just very quickly, remember, you can only possess with what you experience. And consider this in worship. Draw near, listen, because God is speaking. Remember we talked about worship? Draw near, listen to what God has to say. Be quiet and stay calm because God hears the inaudible and he sees the invisible. Make a commitment and keep it because God doesn't forget. Don't decide now and deny later because God won't ignore your decisions. In other words, whatever you promise God, keep your promise. And consider this in complacency. All that is necessary for evil to triumph is that good men do nothing. Contentment and self and circumstances will cause us to ignore God's best. It was Martin Luther King who said, Our lives begin to end the day we become silent on the things that matter. I'm inviting you to use your voice today and tomorrow to speak about what really matters. And then consider this when it comes to security. Thomas Jefferson, those who desire to give up freedom in order to gain security will have neither and deserve neither. Someone once asked an astronaut, how does it feel to be inside the space capsule? The astronaut said, It really makes you think when everything is done according to the lowest bidder. Can you imagine you're in a place where your whole life depends on the person who made what it is that you're existing in? You know what's funny about that? God made you to be in the place where you find yourself in. And he didn't use materials that were shabby. God didn't create and provide his inheritance to his children to consign it to the lowest bitter poem, and we're done. Said the robin to the sparrow, I should really like to know why these anxious humans rush about and worry so. Said the sparrow to the robin, well, I think that it must be 
that they have no heavenly father who cares for you and me. Get your head out of the sand. Look up. Ask God. Lord, help me to want more of what you have for me in Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we commit this time to you, Lord. We thank you for your love and grace. Lord, we, we know that we read these names and we read the geography and we get lost in all of these words. But Lord, I pray that the men and women who are, who are listening to this study would begin to realize that what we're talking about is a God who makes promises and keeps promises, who provides an inheritance and then finds a way for you to have exactly what you're supposed to have in order to accomplish all that God has called you to do. And so again, Lord, thank you. Make this Bible come alive to us. Help us to seek guidance by your Holy Spirit, by the word of God, by the throne of heaven by open doors and closed doors, by the circumstance that we find ourselves in. In Jesus' name. And all the saints said like they really mean it. Let's stand.